This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. Storing more carbon in Australian soils is a key greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategy for the government. This week, my guest is Professor Jacqueline McGlade, former Chief Environmental Scientist at the United Nations, to get a really global perspective on soil carbon. Land, soil, is possibly one of the most important ways that we're going to be able to solve the climate problem, which is to sequester carbon and to draw carbon down from the atmosphere. Before we get there, Serena Locke is here with the Rural News of the Week. Good morning, Serena. Good morning, Clint. Let's kick off with one of my favourites and something we haven't discussed in a little bit, basin politics. This week (laughs) there was another nail struck into the coffin of a pretty controversial environmental water target under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Yes, although the coffin isn't ready to be buried yet, Mm -hmm. this is about the future recovery of 450 gigalitres of environmental water that was supposed to add on to the other water recovery under the Basin Plan, but it's looking very uncertain. Yeah, so the Basin Plan has seen more than 2,100 gigalitres recovered towards a 2,750 gigalitre target under the plan. So where does this 450 actually sit into that? Well, this is the water which the plan says was to be recovered for enhanced environmental outcomes. And the recovery was supposed to come through efficiency measures. So projects that save water by changing how it's used and through lifting constraints along the river so that higher volumes can flow. So, for example, negotiating easements with landholders for temporary flooding on their property and lifting low-lying bridges so that water can flow through as well. Well, this week another report came out that was pretty damning about how those projects have been managed uh, over the past decade, which has brought us to the current reality that they won't be done by the critical June 2024 deadline. Yes, this week an independent committee released its review of the 450. It's called the Water for Environment Special Account, or WESA for short. They did a similar review in 2020 with many of the same conclusions, but this time they said they felt more confident in their findings. Now, key among them is the 2024 deadline won't be met. That only a measly amount of the 1.74 billion dollars set aside for those projects had been spent and that if the government did want to recover this water with the same policy settings and projects they'd need to come up with a lot more money an additional 1.6 to 9 billion dollars well the new water minister tanya plibersek released the report on tuesday this week so what's been the political fallout of these findings Well, one thing to note is that this report was handed to the previous Water Minister, Keith Pitt, late last year, something Minister Plibersek was pretty scathing about. And while we're on the topic of the previous government, people might remember the spectacle in the Senate last year when four nationals tried to get the 450 written out of the Basin Plan altogether. But speaking with our colleague Kath Sullivan on Tuesday, Minister Plibersek said the previous government had run down the clock on this money on purpose. The money is there to deliver on this commitment. What's been missing 
is the will to do it. Uh, I think it's important that we work together across the basin states to deliver in full on the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. That's interesting that Liberals and in the past Nationals have also said that they support the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in full. Now it seems that we've got the Liberals and the Nationals fighting each other, uh, the South Australians fighting other states and territories. It's not acceptable. We have a plan. We should stick to the plan. Tanya Plibersek there, underlying a message uh, that Prime Minister Albanese promised during the election campaign that Labor would deliver the whole Murray-Darling Basin plan, including the 450. Was there any response to the Weezer report from the coalition? Yeah, so the Shadow Minister for Water, Perrin Davey, says the second Weezer review has highlighted that without the support of Basin states, the Basin plan will fail. Well, I think um, the key factor is, and communities have been saying it all along, the funding put on the table for the 450 was never going to be enough to do it uh, in the manner that it was intended, through infrastructure works, through state-led projects, and without damaging communities socially and economically. Last week on the show, I played my interview with the Ukrainian Grain Association's President Nikolai Gorbachev about the deal brokered by Turkey and the United Nations to get Ukrainian grain moving out of the Black Sea. He said he didn't trust Russia, but he had a little bit more faith in the UN to get it working. Do we have any update on how it's actually going? Yeah, so we do, because the first shipment of grain did leave the Ukrainian port of Odessa, but the market's not convinced this means the massive export of wheat from the granary of Europe has started up again. Russian bombing at the port has been continuing and the truce is believed to be very uneasy. Ukrainian farmers have a lot of grain to ship, a backlog of millions of tonnes from this season and from last year. The world wheat price has fallen a bit, but it still remains historically high. And Nick Crundall from Market Check says analysts are watching the development in Ukraine closely. There's probably two things to keep in mind. One is Putin has history with really not fulfilling these deals. You know, he's been bombing ports as recently as on the weekend. Um, uh, and it's not unusual for him to do an uh, about face. So that's one risk, obviously. And the other is that the vessel that was done most recently and the ones that will be happening out of the Ukraine over the sort of foreseeable future is the grain that was sitting in ports. And it's an entirely different setup when you actually have to move grain from upcountry Ukraine into the port and what the infrastructure looks like and the commercial realities of all that while there's a war going on. Another big issue with getting grain out of the Black Sea at the moment is finding insurance for the vessels and the Lloyd's List podcast that came out on Saturday had a really good rundown of all of those issues. So I'd recommend checking that out. To a different topic now, there's been some good news on the foot and mouth disease front. Yes, yeah, step by step on this one, Indonesian officials say they hope to bring the foot and mouth disease outbreak under control by the end of the year through the rollout of vaccinations. There have been more than 450,000 cases of the disease across the archipelago of Indonesia, but authorities say they uh, there are now zero reported infections in Bali, with all 556 infected cattle having died or been slaughtered. Indonesian Foot and Mouth Disease Task Force spokesperson, Professor Wiku Adisasmoto, addressed international media in a press conference earlier this week. We already have three million uh, vaccines right now by the Ministry of Agriculture, which already distributed and injected uh, some of them with a the progress in, in some areas like uh, East 
Jaffa where it's uh, FMD is a very high cases over there and now it's already reaching like 50% of the vaccination rate. Serena, we should never let a disgusting skin crawling mouse plague keep us from having a learning moment. And to that end, scientists at the CSIRO haven't let that gross episode of recent history go to waste. Yes, yeah, so research carried out during last year's New South Wales mouse plague has uncovered information about their behaviour to help farmers fight future infestations. Now, CSIRO scientists found zinc phosphide baits need to be made twice as potent to have a real effect on the rodents' populations. The new stronger zinc phosphide has been found to kill around 80% of the mice 80% of the time or more. Now, researcher Steve Henry says they also determined weaker baits allowed mice to outsmart humans, a problem the stronger baits can overcome. So that led us to then undertake some field trials about testing zinc phosphide baits with an appropriate dose of zinc phosphide on them. And so we've now completed all of this work. It's been written up and there's an emergency permit um, granted by the APVMA to manufacture a stronger zinc phosphide bait. And so far, some of the reports that we're getting uh, from the regions, from farmers that are using these baits, is that they're really satisfied with them. Make it 100%, I reckon. Recreational fishers in Tasmania are reporting surprising catches of fish normally found much further north. Yes, and it's not just a tall tail of fishing. The yellowtail kingfish, the snapper and King George whiting. These fish are extending their range south due to warming waters and they could become new commercial fisheries. Scientists from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science have been investigating their biology and the impact on local ecosystems and Dr. Alexia Grabalandri says these conditions are suitable for all three of these species, but breeding conditions not yet. For yellowtail kingfish, our modelling suggests that even under extreme warming, the waters off the coast of Tasmania are unlikely to support a self-sustaining population. But certainly for snapper and King George whiting, it is likely that waters may be warm enough to sustain uh, reproduction and successful reproduction, at least in parts of the state. Tassie anglers can keep their hands off our fish. <laughs> well, it's the story of the fish that got away from northern <laughs> states, I think. Hey, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Yeah, good to talk to you, Clint. Thanks. All across the weekend, it's a feast of stories with RN's Big Weekend of Books. Authors and ideas from Australia and around the world. Books and conversations to intrigue and inspire. History to climate fiction. From music to writing for children. Memoir, crime and much more. RN's Big Weekend of Books, all across the weekend. On your radio, online and on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're taking a rainforest walk to learn more about Australia's ancient, wild and endangered macadamia trees. We'll meet crafty members of a rural community who formed a band to show off the musical instruments they made by hand. And we'll hear about efforts to restore wetlands on a former farming property to provide a habitat for threatened species. We're continuing to lose habitat. We're continuing to, you know, threatened species becoming more threatened. Climate change impacts like you know the bushfires and droughts have wreaked a, a, a massive toll on the, on our wildlife. So we really need to start thinking about how do we yeah you know, going into the future how do we protect biodiversity and and ourselves you know as as humans we we can't survive without nature so we need to to protect nature. 
We'll travel to northern Victoria to hear about wetland restoration work that's ensuring species like growling grass frogs and Australasian bitterns have a place to call home. That's all coming up, but first today, a story of survival. An outback cattle station worker had his life changed forever by a tragic accident, but he's grateful to have survived and he told reporter Hugo Rickard-Bell of his hope for the future. We were processing cattle through the yard uh, and we were uh, walking them out and we had one mob to walk out. It was down a lane and my partner, Alice, she said oh, she'd be right with them and um, I said oh, I'll go do the bull run then. Doing a bull run or driving around a property on a motorbike, checking on water points for livestock is something that Matthew Brockhurst had dug countless times without incident in his years working on cattle stations in northern Australia. But this day would prove to be different. Yeah, I was heading home from the bull run, driving on, a, on the road and went around a corner and there was a rock on the road and I thought, oh, shit, basically. And uh, I hit it and I um, went over the handlebars and wasn't overly fast or anything. Yeah, the motorbike ended up with slightly bent handlebars and I ended up with a, a broken back. Matt had shattered his T5 vertebrae and will most likely never walk again. G'day, I'm Hugo Ricard-Bell. I first met Matt when we were both working on properties in WA's Kimberley region. Matt's family runs Larrawa Station in the East Kimberley, but the day this accident happened in November 2021, he was working on a cattle station with his partner Alice in central Queensland. I asked him when he realised the seriousness of his injury. I hit the ground. I was wearing a helmet. The dust was sort of settling and I was laying there and I went to get up and I couldn't. So that's a bit strange. And I laid there and I felt my leg and I could feel it with my hand, but I couldn't feel it with my leg. And I was like, "Mm, this is a bit strange. And so I laid there and I thought, I'll just take a couple of deep breaths and get my head around everything and went to get up again. And I, um, yeah, sort of knew something was wrong then. So yeah, I just uh, laid there. I took my helmet off because that was sort of making me a bit uncomfy, but, you know, I did it slowly and, yeah, so I just sort of took it off and sat there and waited for someone to come. He lay on the road for about two hours before being found. You know, I was thinking, I'm not bleeding on the outside, but I've got to have some internal damage there due to, you know, if I've broken my back, something's gone wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm very thirsty at this point in time, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon, somewhere around there, that's, you know, it's pretty hot. Uh, North Queensland in November, or central north is sort of not, not the coolest place to be anyway. So I'm thinking, yeah, the sun, heat stroke, lots of different things going through my mind. What have I broken? Ribs, punctured anything. You know, it wasn't the easiest of breathing, but could breathe relatively well. Like, yeah, so I um, had a bit going through my mind and I was sort of thinking about Shit, was, what was the last words I said to Alice? Uh, what was the last things I said to my mum and dad and brothers? And, and I remember thinking, you know, I've, I've made it this far. If I live now with whatever I have, you know, I was thinking, you know, this is every moment from now on is, is, a, is, a, is a plus, you know. Obviously, the big man was looking after me. Yeah, so now it's, I'm not worried that I don't have the legs. It's, it's certainly annoying. You know, I don't have abdominal muscles. There's more to it than not just having legs, but it's another moment. I get to say hello to my mum. Now I have the opportunity to sleep with my partner every night and talk about the future and you don't you don't worry about the little things. Walking's, you know, it makes life easier, but at least I'm still alive. It was whilst recovering in hospital that Matt, who was twenty four at the time, received the news 
he was unlikely to walk again. Well, I didn't really find out that for a few days. Sort of woke up and they come do the rounds and they finally tell you how your surgery went, what were the outcomes. So they sort of said, oh, you're fused from T1 to T8. So there's steel rods uh, there. And then he sort of said, um, you've not severed your spinal cord, but you've stretched it. You're what they call a complete injury and, and you are very unlikely of walking ever again. He said, I never say never, but the chances are pretty slim. What's it like getting that information? What's going through your head? Yeah, it was sort of water off a duck's back, I think. I, yeah, I didn't believe him. I was probably in denial. I was thinking I'm, you know, that I'll prove him wrong. And then it probably wasn't until a week or so later it sort of finally hit me and I, yeah, I remember they were sort of starting to shower me and move me around a bit and I just thought, oh, this is shit. It all sunk in. The nurses were sort of saying to my mum, they are waiting for me to, to finally get that realisation and, and to, to break down and, yeah, eventually, eventually it did happen. Yeah, and it wasn't wasn't pretty, I don't think. Did a bit of ugly crying and the rest of it. <laughs> you know, what what you're going through, a lot of people have before, but so many haven't, thankfully. Is there anything that you've learnt in particular? One of the big things, I reckon, is there's setbacks in life, whether it's as minor or major as, you know, stubbing a toe or and how you deal with that or, you know, losing a loved one, breaking your back, any of those things in life. If you attack it with a positive mindset, anything's possible. And then in the same token, you can be as safe as you want. Accidents still happen. There is not one thing that I could have done differently that day to stop that from happening. I wasn't driving fast on the motorbike. You know, I could have swerved and missed a rock or something else could have happened. But at the end of the day, it's purely an accident. And I think a lot of the things in life, we try to blame it on people. And, you know, I blamed myself for a little while for that um, happening and for putting us through what I have and putting myself and my family through it. But at the end of the day, it, I think, you know, you just got to accept sometimes sort of what, what happens. And if you approach it with a positive sense of humour and, you know, don't make light of the situation, but be positive. It's not the end of your life. You're not dead. This was irrigated paddocks. Kenny Jewell sort of retired it from farming in the 2000s, and then after the 2011 flood, all the sea came up. Ecologist Damien Cook is pointing out native vegetation as he drives around Ken and Jill Hooper's property Wirralow in northern Victoria. There's actually quite a lot of emu bush through here, the um, Eremophilus, which they've just come up all over the place. Like, oh, there's one, there's one there, that's an Eremophilus. It's got beautiful big red flowers. In his role with the not-for-profit Wetland Revival Trust, he's been working with the couple to repair and preserve this 180 hectare property, a former dairy farm, since 2014. There's 11 wetlands on Wirralow which can be filled with environmental water, providing homes for 30 threatened species. Now, as the couple look to sell the land, Mr Cook is eager to ensure the environmental gains that have been made here will continue. There's a huge um, community uh, opportunity here, you know, that, um, that, you know, we can carry forward the vision that Ken and Jill had about, you know, restoring the wetlands and keeping this place available for the community to use as a, as an outdoor classroom for, you know, so the kids can come here and, and learn about Aboriginal culture and, and ecosystems and biodiversity and all those sort of things. It's, al it's also a great demonstration site where we can show how, how wetlands can be restored. As part of that restoration process, like, um, 
of those 130 species that are here, 30 have actually been reintroduced, and of and of those 30, there's eight of them are, are, are rare and threatened. So we've yeah we've done a lot of you know reintroduction of threatened species. Um, so it's basically it's a great um, kind of example of what you know what can be done with environmental restoration and, and using environmental water to to future proof the landscape. So we can with the threat of climate change, a lot of our endangered species are you know they're already threatened. They're going to become more threatened, you know, with changes in the climate. So if we can, if we can deliver water to the wetlands here, where so we've always got a, a refuge pool for the growling grass frogs, and we've always got somewhere for the bittens to come and, and nest, then we're helping those threatened species survive into the future. So, you know, we've just had a, a, the latest state of the environment report come down, and it's got some, you know, some pretty dire um, things in there about, you know, we. You know, we we we're continuing to lose habitat. We're continuing to, you know, threatened species are becoming more threatened. Climate change impacts like you know the bushfires um, and droughts have wreaked a, a, a massive toll on the, on our wildlife. So we really need to start thinking about how do we, you know, in going into the future, how do we protect biodiversity and and ourselves? You know, as as humans, we we can't survive without nature. So we need to to uh, to protect nature. Hello, I'm Kelly Hollingworth. Damien Cook is taking me on a tour of this property at Murrabit West, just south of the Murray River. We're seeing some of the wetlands and observing wildlife that call the area home. There's a great big wetland down through here. There's about 35 hectares. To purchase this property, the Wetland Revival Trust will need to come up with $750,000, a sum Mr Cook concedes is ambitious. It's pretty ambitious, yeah. uh, I'm always up for a challenge and (laughs) I've worked as an ecologist all my life um, and so, yeah, this fundraising thing's a bit of a, a new gig for me. Um, but you know, I've been amazed how generous you know people have been. You know, we've um, we've we've already raised a, a, you know a good portion of, of the funds. Um, we've, we've still got a long way to go. I'm not. I don't have any illusions about it's going to be easy. But I think um, yeah, I, I think it's a good project that people can get behind because they can see. You know, it's not just an environmental project; it's a social justice project. We've already got some runs on the board. We've got the threatened species here, and I think yeah, going forward into the future, we can prove that um, hopefully we. You know that this is something that could happen on a bigger scale. That we could um, actually, you know, look after ecosystems and help uh, ourselves and, and and nature survive into the future. My name is Ricky Kirby. I'm I'm uh, up and coming elder of uh, Brapa Brapa tribe and, and a few of the navy neighbouring tribes. And this is part of my traditional ground. When I see country coming back to the natural state, it's like a healing within sight. It's hard to explain, but when the, when the country looks healthy, it makes us feel healthy too. What are some of the things you enjoy the most about coming out here? Is it looking at wildlife? Is it seeing the vegetation grow? Yeah, all that. Well, seeing that swan over there, I haven't sort of really seen a nest since I was a kid out hunting on country. And I'm over 50. It's a good feeling. What would it mean to you if this property could be purchased by the trust and there was an opportunity for an Indigenous ranger to be employed out here? Oh, that'd be a big stepping stone in closing the gap sort of between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. A sense of belonging, you know, and somewhere to come and to teach our kids and our young ones um, a, a bit of connection back to country. 
Brapa Brapa man Ricky Kirby, he was speaking to Kelly Hollingworth at Wirralow Station near the Murray River in northern Victoria. The not-for-profit Wetland Revival Trust is hoping to buy the property and continue work restoring wetlands. You can see more on that story on the RN homepage. Head to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Stick around as we're going to get a musical performance from a bunch of master craftsmen. They've made their own ukuleles and they're getting together for a strum to test them out. We'll also dive into the fascinating history of Australia's native nut, the macadamia. Walking through this remnant patch of dense rainforest, Ian McConaughey is looking for signs of a flowering tree with a long history in this part of southeast Queensland. That's the macadamia there. See, see the shoot see the growing from the base? This rainforest is some of the last remaining natural habitat of our country's most cultivated ancient bush food. Decimated by clearing and development, wild macadamias are increasingly rare. All four species are listed as threatened. We believe between 80 and 90% of the wild trees that existed prior to European settlement have been lost. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm walking through the Amamore State Forest, southwest of Gympie, with Ian McConaughey, the founder of the Macadamia Conservation Trust. He's a self-described macadamia dinosaur, a retired food scientist, field researcher, grower and passionate historian who is instrumental in developing Australia's modern macadamia industry, establishing a cooperative and building the first factory in a region where the tasty global crop has ancestral roots. It was a very treasured food, Uh, it was a very rare food and with the first engagement between Aboriginal people and the white settlers they often brought in macadamia nuts which they called gindle or in this area bopple and uh, they traded the macadamia nuts for tobacco and rum and uh, other white man's evils. uh, I think the macadamia nut was a better deal. (laughs) Ian McConaughey has been visiting wild macadamia trees in the Amamore State Forest for decades. What he's learnt is fascinating. This tree, it's only got about 18 leaves on it. It's chest high. I first saw it in 1979. And between 1979 and now, it has not grown at all. It's sitting in the rainforest in dense shade, just waiting until it receives light. So we have no idea how old it is. We know that it's over 40 years of age. It could be a couple hundred years of age. How long can the trees remain productive? The oldest tree that we know the date of planting is in the Brisbane Botanic Gardens. It was planted in 1858 and it's still healthy, it still produces an excellent crop. But uh, One of the initiatives we're taking is that we're starting to do radiocarbon dating of trees in the rainforest so we can see just what their longevity is and how old they might be. Mr McConaughey says preserving the rare plants' genetics in the wild is even more important since an incredible DNA discovery made by Queensland scientists in 2019. There is possibly a hundred million macadamia trees grown throughout the world that have all originated from one mother tree that is very close to here. From my understanding, nuts were taken from Queensland to Hawaii where they were commercialised and that's where people get confused about the origins of the nut. But I've had it described to me as absolutely shocking that 
all of these trees grown around the world have all derived from potentially, as you said, one mother tree. It's outstanding. It's outstanding indeed, but that, that is the case. That's insane. How vulnerable does that make the population then, given you know, all the environmental pressures that species are facing? The genetic base of our industry is quite narrow. What we're trying to do is conserve some genetic material from wild stands of trees and take material from them and cultivate some trees in a safe environment in an arboretum. And we've got several arboreta in various locations in eastern Australia. Andy Burnside is director of the Macadamia Conservation Trust and he's worried about the threats facing the wild population. The encroachment of urban environments into marginal rainforest areas. Um, there's also um, problems associated with fire and then exotic weed pests are taking over. One in particular that disturbs me is the cat's claw vine. It's a scourge. Pest and disease resistance, size and climate adaptability are just some of the traits these wild trees could provide to improve the commercial crop. We have sampled over 600 uh, uh, wild macadamia trees and studied their DNA markers and we're just realising just how enormously diverse the genetics are and that is terribly important in the future. Finding wild macadamias in dense rainforest takes practice. So many people are familiar with the macadamia, but to see it in the rainforest is just quite mind-boggling. It's, it's nothing like you would expect. They hide uh, amongst all the other trees. Most of them are, are very small. A, a small tree may be hundreds of years old because it's waiting for light uh, so that it can grow. Traditional owner Russell Bennett has been using his keen eye to help the Macadamia Conservation Trust and Healthy Land and Water identify more of the trees in the Amamore State Forest. I'm a born and bred in Gympie. I'm Gubby Gubby Waka Waka Kalalee. This is my country. I've been a custodian all my life and looked after this country. Grew up here, I've worked here all my life, raised my kids here and yeah, I really hope that we can highlight the importance of these macadamias out here so um, we can preserve them and thus preserve the bush they live in. And now, to make that happen, there's an official Walk with Wild Macadamias information trail. It's astounding. It's um, quite a pristine place where the remnants of uh, wild populations survive. It's just a short stroll from the Amama Dayus area in the Amamore State Forest, northwest of Queensland's Sunshine Coast. And it's um, hopefully a place where the um, general public can have the opportunity to see them in their natural state. Andy Burnside and Ian McConaughey hope ecotourists will be hungry to learn more about the origins of this tasty native nut. The macadamia is Australia's only native plant that's become an international food and that it is very threatened. So we're hoping that this is how we can tell the story of the wild macadamia and the need for its conservation. Inside the men's shed, nestled on top of Mount Tambourine, amongst saws, drills and sandpaper, is a new band practising their set list. Hello, I'm Caitlin Sheehan. I've travelled up to Tambourine Mountain in Queensland's Gold Coast hinterland to meet the offcuts, so named because of the wood that they've used to make their own ukuleles. He gets the wood, he 
It all started when Tambourine Mountain Community Men's Shed member Keith was questioned about why he was taking home some leftovers. Years ago, when I first became involved with the Men's Shed, our former president, Steve, came up to me and he said, what are you doing with all these little bits of wood? And I said, well, I finish them here, I machine them here, I take them home to make instruments. He says, what type of instruments? I said, oh, guitars, ukuleles, uh, predominantly ukuleles because they're an easy build. And then he said, well, that might be a great project for the guys at the shed. And from there we've evolved to probably a dozen or more people getting involved and producing fine, fine instruments. They're built to a standard. <coughs> a lot of people that haven't played music before can appreciate playing or learning to play on a good instrument. So, um, yeah, today we're proof of that with all these people here that are enjoying their time and people that haven't played music before are learning to play because they now have an instrument to play on. Rob, could you describe your ukulele for me? Oh, it's made from various offcuts of wood. The top, the soundboard, is pine and it was originally a scaffolding plank. <laughs> and then... Um, the sides are walnut, which were from some old bit of furniture that um, ended up coming to the shed and we took it apart and reused the wood. And then um, the neck is a composite of several bits of wood, um, white oak, walnut. Has anyone named their ukulele, I'm wondering? This one's called Prototype. <laughs> prototype! <laughs> Keith, it's a beautiful prototype. Yeah, well, it was the introduction into making baritone ukuleles. Oh. And the baritone, it differs to the tenor in the way the instrument's put together. The baritone ukulele, more or less, um, well, fundamentally, it, it's designed like a classical guitar. It's quite an exacting science to get them intonated to play correctly so that they're all playing the same mode at the right time. The soundboard is pine. It's book matched just fine. So once you've all made ukuleles, what point did you go, hey... Maybe we should create a bit of a band. We're all practicing and learning our instruments. How did that come about, Rob? Well, I guess we started playing for the Christmas party, the, the Men's Shed Christmas party. So we did a couple of Christmas carols for a year or so. And we did Christmas in July. So that sort of started us off gently. And then we got involved with the Lions Club that have an inclusion group, the Mountain Mates. And they came along to the shed and they made percussion instruments. And we played some songs with them. It's sort of grown from there, so we've played with them at the Zamia Theatre and, and then we've played for the Garden Club at Springtime on the Mountains and um, we're playing next month at the car show um, to raise funds for Jim Stevens' appeal. The other thing that we've started to do is write our own uh, material, which is a, a lot of fun as well. So we, we started this from nothing with just a few offcuts of wood and now not only have we made the ukuleles and learned how to play the ukuleles, but we're now saying, oh, maybe we could do some more creative things about uh, uh, songwriting as well. What are some of the songs that you love to play as a group? What goes off at an offcuts gig? <laughs> at the shed. <laughs> yeah, we've got a few good ones. Making a ukulele is one of the songs that um, Rob put the words to and another one's called at the shed and we play that generally after the shed shuffle song that's our sort of introduction bit of music when we play something yeah is there a sense of pride then because you've all made these instruments i feel like you'd be more excited to to play them because it's your own hands have created this and then you're able to then create music with it and share that with people. Is that the sense that you all get? That's right. I, think, I think one of the key aspects here is because we've actually made them, 
There's only a few of us here which actually play instruments. The other guys have virtually made them from scratch, from the offcuts, and then also learned how to play. And that's been a process, what, an 18 month period, where to a point now, um, as a group, we can play together. I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits from making from scratch to learning how to play. Reporter Caitlin Sheehan was chatting with members of the Offcuts. They've turned scraps of wood into musical instruments. Before that, Jennifer Nichols went walking among the wild macadamia trees in Queensland's Amamore State Forest with members of the Macadamia Conservation Trust to hear about a heritage trail for the endangered wild trees. For more on both of those stories and all of the stories you've heard on today's show, check out the show online by heading to the RN homepage. Look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab where you'll find all the links you need. Imagine a painting of Australian landscape. Now, step inside. This vast southern continent has captured the imagination of our artists for millennia. Join Rachel Griffiths on an artistic quest deep into six masterpieces. I'll travel to the exact spot where our beloved artists captured their iconic images. Great Southern Landscapes. There it is. Starts Tuesday, August 9 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Storing carbon in our soils is one of Australia's key greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategies. Australian cropping land has lost around half of its soil organic carbon, while for grazing land it's about a third. And building it back up again produces a whole range of benefits. Higher microbial activity and more nutrients produce higher yielding crops. More recently, markets have been created that pay farmers to store carbon in the soil as an offset for emissions in other parts of the economy. Professor Jacqueline McGlade is a former United Nations Chief Environment Scientist, and I'm not exaggerating when I say Professor McGlade has too many titles and achievements in her career to list here. But the Kenya-based scientist was in Australia this week as Chief Scientist and co-founder of Downforce Technologies, and one of the most qualified people to talk about soil carbon sequestration. So my first question was where Australia is sitting compared to other countries around the world. The program in Australia is really outing edge. In fact, there isn't another program where soil organic carbon has been recognised in a formal way to be part of the solution for sequestering carbon. So I have to say that from the beginning. Um, Others are trying. Others are trying to create carbon codes, soil carbon codes and so on. But Australia has really put on paper and is doing it in practice an idea that initially started and and has really, I would say, opened up the floodgates of a really important point internationally and also nationally which is that land soil is possibly one of the most important ways that we're going to be able to solve the climate problem which is to sequester carbon and to draw carbon down from the atmosphere can you give the bare bones explanation of how that process works in biological terms land has got many many things living beneath the surface so effectively you've got microbes and fungi all kinds of organisms interacting then with the plants, the cover. They can be crops, they can be trees, they can be all kinds of things, grasses and so on. And those plants, they have roots coming down into the soil. So the soil is almost like a, a, a structure. It's like a framework, an architecture in which the microbes live. But the soil itself also provides minerals and chemistry. 
And so that interaction is really one which is vital. And the microbial population then uses a kind of sugars, the exudates as they're known from the roots, to rapidly turn that into their own growth potential. So they're growing. And as they're growing and dying and living and dying and going on, they're actually storing carbon. And as they die, they go into the mix of the soil and on the basis of the pH and the chemistry, then that carbon, which was in the microbial population and the plant biomass, gets mineralized and it gets stored then and drawn down into the lower areas, the lower layers of the soil. And that's what's essentially the carbon in the mineral and the carbon abatement, the carbon capture. Is part of the opportunity here that so much carbon has been lost from the soil over recent decades? Absolutely. I mean, Australia has what we would call ancient soils, but all over the world, we're losing topsoil because we've had heavy industrial use through farming, where not only has the topsoil been broken down and the microbial populations have not been um, well maintained, but gradually, because of the compaction, like the heavy tractors moving around, this topsoil area isn't now going down in the, into the depth. There's almost like a hard packed layer at, say, 30 centimetres. So effectively, we're growing our crops in a potentially in a very, very narrow band of soil at the top. And of course, that means again and again, you're thinning out the capacity of that land to store carbon. In healthy soils, you have roots going right the way down and literally using, you know, metres of, of land, of soil to actually grow. So our industrial action has reduced the capacity of soil to hold carbon. That is a literally a sort of self-fulfilling thing where you go round and round in a circle. It's a sort of vicious circle of the soil depletes. It's less able to hold carbon. The soil depletes and, and therefore we've had a runaway decrease in the amount of carbon held in the soil. Conservation farming, which uh, includes or is sometimes called no-till farming, is seen as an important technology for increasing carbon in cropping lands in developing countries. But Australian farmers have been nearly universally doing that on their crops for the last 20 years. And one question that gets asked a lot is just how much capacity there is to store carbon on, on cropping land specifically. So how do you look at that in a farming system used by Australia? Australian farmers have recognised for a very long time that they're living with a fragile resource. Nevertheless, conservation farming can improve that. And we have many examples now, and certainly all over the country, of people and farmers being able to bring that soil organic carbon up through good use of organic matter, manuring, using biofertilisers, a whole raft of different activities, including no-till. So it's not that it's not possible. I think what hasn't really been understood is how critical the land is for other things like storing water, avoiding floods, giving all these other ecosystem services. And I think that's where farming in Australia is really coming of age, understanding how land provides so many other services than just simply growing food. This is Country Breakfast and my guest this morning is Professor Jacqueline McGlade. Now that we've covered, I guess, the basics of soil in carbon, can you lay out, I guess, the building blocks of these carbon markets or yeah, where we shift into that market kind of area for trading credits in this soil carbon? Okay, there's lots of hype about carbon markets, but broadly speaking, the world is filled up with the voluntary carbon market and the regulated. Australia has one of the only regulated soil carbon markets, 
And for that, the clean energy regulator have come with a very clear plan that essentially you can undertake different management practices. You establish your baseline. You go out and you either use uh, directly soil samples or a soil measurement process and then literally work forward over 25 years or some long period and look at it every three to five years and assess whether that management practice has been done and whether it's made a difference. That is kind of a very understood and, and well uh, set out future, apart from the costs of taking the samples. In the rest of the world, it's primarily a voluntary carbon market where it's driven more by outcomes, less of an emphasis on how you got there, but really genuinely putting far, far more, I would say, money and resources on the table. Why do people do it? Well, it's because in the climate change game, if I'm going to call it, many companies are looking to inset. And what we mean by that is find a way to store carbon on their own land to offset the emissions of their operations. So this could be farmers using diesel or whatever in their tractors, energy, fertilizers and so forth. But there are also big companies that need to find a way to offset their emissions where they don't have their own land. And this voluntary carbon market is opening up opportunities for farmers to make their land available to do precisely that. One of the biggest barriers to high enrolment in these uh, programs or either of those markets is the high cost of establishing a a baseline, how much carbon's already in the soil so that you can measure uh, a future storage. What is the most common method that uh, baselines are being established at the moment? Up until recently, I would say that uh, there's been a high dependence on soil sampling. So essentially going out, doing a random sample. Um, But you can imagine if you've got a a property that's 500,000 hectares, that's pretty difficult to do. Nevertheless, um, people would take a small area, they'd go and take samples, send those samples to a laboratory, get back an idea of what the soil organic carbon is, make a sort of randomized or stratified map across the area, sort of making a smooth surface out of those data, looking for averages, and put that forward as a baseline. Very expensive, and what we are seeing again and again is that there's so much variability in many properties in in many parts of the country that literally if you were to step a few metres to the right or to the left and you did the same thing, you'd get a completely different answer. So that has been the way that has been done, but in the research and the national programmes, there would be much more intensive sampling and there would be sort of more, what I would say, capacity to look at the variability. But that's just sometimes beyond the affordability of many farmers when they want to establish their baselines. You've pioneered an alternative method for establishing these baselines and taking measurement of uh, soil carbon. How does it work? One of the great things that's happened in the last five to ten years is an enormous increase in the amount of information and data and national programs, research programs, and making that publicly available. I mean, literally, it is um, an exponential increase in the amount of of public data. And I've tried to do my part. I was the chief scientist in the UN. Um, I was leading the European Environment Agency. So I've always been passionate about making as much information available, collect it once, use it many times. And so I'm very fortunate in the sense that having the knowledge of where and how much information there really is to put together a kind of different way of looking at the land from the functionality. So not just relying on the soil profile, 
but looking at all the other attributes that affect soil organic carbon, the, the, the pH, the, the terrain, the latitude and longitude, the climatology, the geology, all of those other things. And having that deeper picture from all of these public data sets and the knowledge from the research community, it is actually possible to reclassify the land and then to put that classification and expose it to some of the data that's coming in from satellites and other sources, radar, LIDAR, all these things that are being measured consistently. And what that does is it tells you almost like having lots and lots of layers of clothing and you see that someone's very hot, you take their temperature, but actually we can tell you how many layers of clothing that person has got on. And this is the same thing. We can use the calibration, as it's known, the validation of those large global data sets to tell you precisely what's happening every 10 meters, because we now understand from the data what is happening in that functionality. So we don't have to go to every place within a large property within you know, Australia. We don't have to go to every single place because we've had so many observations that we can actually model and see what that response is and where it is on the scale of soil organic carbon. So that's how we use big data. We use machine learning, we use real data from the real world and get ourselves into a much better understanding of what's happening on the ground. And is there space within the, I guess, quite strict requirements under the Australian system for alternative methods for establishing these baselines? Well, I'm really pleased to say that when the CER itself wrote guidelines last year and published them in November, it laid the foundations for a, for a journey that initially they called the hybrid, which is combining the soil sampling at one moment and then looking to the measurement world, the one I've described as being the next step and needing to, in a sense, recognize it being there. So absolutely, the Australian system is looking in that direction, but needing to build up confidence and trust in the wider community that this is the way to go. I say that because sometimes it's difficult to imagine a world where what, what you have in your hand, that soil sample sitting in your hand, is only a partial truth. Um, because as I say, if you move slightly one way or the other and you take another handful of soil, you're going to get a different answer. So what, what I think the regulator has understood is there's a need to take into account all of that variability. And the door is open and I'm, so, I'm very hopeful that in the next you know, short while we can move in that direction and open up the possibility of a really affordable way for farmers and landowners alike to be able to understand the whole of their property rather than have always to look to these individual samples as the only source of moving forward. Jacqueline McGlade, you're obviously extremely invested in this whole area of soil carbon as a key tool in addressing the climate crisis. How much of a role globally do you expect it to play? Although soil carbon is the conversation piece today, when I first sort of came out of the UN, the conversation was about natural uh, nature-based solutions and natural capital. So soil will play its role. It's absolutely um, imperative that we recognize that it's going to be kind of underpinning much of what we want to talk about. But overall, it's the biodiversity, it's the water, it's the whole land picture that needs to come forward. And I'm really happy to say that at the last convention uh, sort of conference of the parties, as it's known, which is part of the climate change negotiations in Glasgow last year, 
that there was a recognition that we will not be able to meet the emission reductions of whether it's net zero carbon, there's all these different labels. We're never going to get there if we only focus on the environment through the lens of fuel, of emissions, of transport and infrastructure. We need to bring nature in and onto the table. So what I see is that soil organic carbon is just the first entry point and where we need to get to and to progress very quickly is all of nature and have nature do some of the heavy lifting to help us really reduce the emissions and to suck down more carbon into the ground. You have clearly laid out that, you know, a whole suite of ecosystem services come from having better or higher levels of soil carbon on farms. One thing I often hear from farmers looking at this scheme is this notion that offering credits so that another industry can pollute um, while they continue to have good practices on their farm is equivalent to setting up a landfill site on their property. Do you encounter that attitude very much? And what's your response to that? Well, I actually think it's really on the mark. I, I, I completely agree at one level that it's it's almost egregious to think that somebody else's um, lazy behaviour uh, can be easily sort of sloughed off into someone else by do, by them doing better. But I'm I'm also convinced that some of the ways in which carbon crediting is done, whether it's through some very careful tree planting or transitions towards regenerative agriculture, those funds can genuinely help landowners and farmers move on to new and better pathways for the future. So it, it's, it's not a black and white, and we all actually need to scrutinize these kinds of um, credit schemes to make sure that we're not just making it easy for freeloaders, that, that's absolutely clear. But if in the end, we all benefit, and that, well, in the end, the soil benefits, and we actually have really great soil health, and it's increasing, and more importantly, people in the developing world are part of the scheme, and not left behind, or there aren't middlemen taking vast amounts of money out of the system, leaving the people on the ground with nothing. Those are the kinds of things we need to be very careful and vigilant about. Professor Jacqueline McGlade, thank you for talking to Country Breakfast. Thank you so much. Professor Jacqueline McGlade, Chief Scientist and Co-Founder at Downforce Technologies. If you really want to get across all the issues in Australia's soil carbon program, I can't recommend the latest edition of the Farm Policy Journal highly enough. It's got some of the best agricultural economists from our universities, a paper by the Grattan Institute and one from Tim Bashara from the Wilderness Society. Coming at the issue from all angles, the journal is published by the Farm Policy Institute and I'll link it on the show notes online. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Matthew Sigley for helping bring the show together this week and stay tuned because the Saturday superstars of RN are coming right up. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.